Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Some people just... supposed to lose? For balance in the universe? I mean, like are there just some people on Earth who... Supposed to be here just to make it easier for the winners. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, a new study shows that the more your brain treats your future self like a stranger, the less self-control you exhibit today, you're less able to resist temptations, you procrastinate more, you exercise less. Why does your brain hate your future self? I was going to say, my fucking brain, I can't wait till I can get rid of it, you know, and just think with think with my pure soul. It's, it's, doing, it's doing nothing but damaging me. <laughs> um, it is an interesting question. I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. It's a Parfidian question. It, it's, uh, in some sense, I've always really been compelled by the idea that your future self, like when you're acting for the sake of your future self, it's altruism because your future self is not really yourself in a deep in a deep way um it is also actually yourself in some other deep way one way of saying it is that i have some illusion that it is still me but i think it's interesting that the and you know hal hirschfield who did who i guess did that study and um uh, my friend dan bartels who's done a similar study before has shown like if you get people to have the Parfidian intuition that your self doesn't persist, that it's just an illusion, you can manipulate them into saving less money, right? Yeah. And if you get them to buy it, that it actually is you, that you have a sense of continuity, then... And I think that the sense of continuity is so strong that we, for shorter-term things, it's obvious, like my tomorrow self. But, but I still have... Do you have this feeling? Every night when I go to bed... I know that I better do the dishes and have the kitchen clean yeah. because tomorrow morning David will be so fucking pissed off. And sometimes tonight David wins out and I say, fuck tomorrow, David. And then the next morning I'm just like, he's an asshole. He's an asshole. He's a selfish asshole. See, I know I not only have the tomorrow Tamler, I have tomorrow Jen. And so that, that, <laughs> that always pushes it over the top. You know, <laughs> I'm very optimistic about tomorrow, Tamler. Um, I just never met him. <laughs> so uh, I like that the brain. Like, I, I'm not exactly. This is definitely that one of those studies where I'm not sure what work the fMRI yeah. study is doing <laughs> here. It turns out that most mental processes are guided by the brain. Most, not. We're not saying all. 
We're not we're not saying that all of them are. There's still room. Because you're talking <laughs> about how you feel, but that's totally irrelevant. Yeah. We're talking like the study is about how your brain treats your future self, not you. You know, I wonder sometimes when Paul uh, uh, Bloom and I wrote this little, this, I mean, this little, this seminal chapter on the Simpsons and psychology, and we were talking about oh, Homer's God. soul. Classic. Yeah. <laughs> How have we not done that for our classic paper series? It's it's like uh, so influential that it's like fish not noticing water. Um, you know, so everybody takes for granted the contribution. But uh, one of the things we were, we were talking about was um, how Paul's idea of naive dualism and how Homer sometimes talks to his brain yeah. and how funny it is that he talks to his brain. But when you actually look at like New York Times pieces and stuff, there's no standard good language to talk about your brain. So people always get caught in these traps of saying like, when you think about triangles, it turns out this area of your brain lights up. And it's like, no. That is you thinking about the triangles. <laughs> right. That is that just is saying that you're thinking about the triangles. There needs to be like some journalistic standard language. Isn't there some like cross-cultural thing where other languages have a better way of doing that than we do? That our language is also implicitly dualist? Oh, I don't know, actually. It's, it sounds, if there's not, then somebody should do it. This sounds like something Sean Nichols is working on. We okay. talked about something relevant to this, and we have to is have ever, him on. Is he ever going to be on the show? He could be the new Josh Green, where he You're keeps <laughs> saying he'll do it, but then never will actually <laughs> will never fair, take the. <laughs> in fairness to Josh Green, I don't think we've asked him in like three years. <laughs> no, that's true. And we probably just asked him one time. But <laughs> he did actually say, let's do it. He, did, he actually agreed to do it, like Sean. And then when yeah. it came down to actually scheduling a time, it was like, yeah. <laughs> he goes on partially examined life. It's, it's, it's <laughs> war. So let's, let's get to our main topic. It's actually somewhat relevant to this idea of our brain discounting the expected value of future events. We won't do our normal opening segment because we have a lot to talk about with our main one on Pascal's Wager, but... Just want to take a moment to thank everybody for their wonderful support. I, I don't know if it's just that I started responding more to email or we've actually been getting more feedback, but but it's been really good feedback um, on Facebook and on on Gmail. We really appreciate it. Thank you for everybody who's reached out to talk to us. There are a few emails that um, I wanted to take more time to respond to because they were they were so good. So we read them all. If we haven't responded, sorry. We really really appreciate them. You can contact us verybadwizards at gmail at Peas or at Tamler on Twitter at Very Bad Wizards for both of us. Um, you can, if you'd like to support us in more tangible ways, you can rate us on iTunes, leave a review. We always appreciate that. Or uh, you can actually go to our page, VeryBadWizards.com, uh, to the support page. One way that we will always stop, we'll always keep thanking you for, is if you go to our Patreon page, um, patreon.com slash VeryBadWizards, you can choose to support us there um keeps the lights on keeps the bandwidth flowing keeps the microphones from breaking well keeps us buying microphones uh or you can just shop as you would on amazon uh normally by clicking on the amazon link on our page and then buying whatever whatever it is um that you would normally buy at no cost to you or finally you can you can donate via paypal 
So we appreciate everything from from a one word tweet to a one million dollar donation. Thank you uh, for for you guys. We would definitely not be at episode one thirteen. <laughs> Um, one other thing, you can follow us on Instagram. Ah, that's right. I forgot. Yes. Run by Eliza Summers, my daughter. For now, I she she posts links to episodes, and then soon she's going to get a little more active on it. Try to make it a, a fun follow for everybody. Also, I want to put in a quick plug for my brother's new monthly YouTube series, Pros and Cons. P R O S E and cons. My brother is a tutor for kids who are studying for various sorts of exams and standardized tests up in New York, and one of the things he specializes in is writing instruction, and he has just these little three to four minute YouTube clips where he goes through the various writing mistakes. You should really, you know, hire him. I should. I'm going to send him a drive. You know, they're 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 small. They're 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 good. You know, like his last one was on helping verbs and how they weaken your sentences. Um, they're good. I, yeah, I'm glad you did watch one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no. be, because someone linked to it, I didn't know about him until someone linked to it because he had a very bad wizard's mug, which right. you know sort of biased me in the direction of lacking whatever. But it was good. He, he did um, a little product placement in that. It's one. funny. It's funny to see another another summers. I think his he has a little gimmick. It's only two, so uh, but of having a Kim Kardashian quote um, <laughs> and break and breaking it down and improving her writing or what she said. Um, so anyway, hey, hey, yeah. last thing, uh, really quick, did, is there still time to sponsor you on the bike ride? Mm. Yes, there is. Um, there is okay. still time to um, sponsor me. The bike ride is in two weeks, um, two weeks Look. exactly from today. So as Dave said last time, auditions for a new host is yeah. two weeks and two days from today. I mean, I feel, do you think it's disrespectful to start auditioning before the bike ride starts? Is it like... <laughs> Is it like the Jewish tradition of not naming someone who's still alive? Like yeah, because <laughs> technically I'm still alive at that point. I mean, I agree, I agree it's just a formality, but I would appreciate it if you waited for auditions until right. after the ride, until it's, you know, because you never know. There could be some sort of miraculous. That's uh, true. So, yeah, so it's a bike ride from Houston to Austin over two days. It's, a, it's called the MS-150. Any donations will support um, that. Uh, MS Society, and so if you know somebody with MS and you want to support um, research into MS, and there's a lot of good research, I know I have a couple friends with MS, and it's really amazing the developments in the last 10 years. This would be one way to do it, and I really appreciate those of you who have sponsored me, including you, Dave. Thank you. My pleasure. It's, it's my last act as your friend. <laughs> Speaking of things that are very unlikely. So so last week we I think we we meant to talk about this but then we realized we had a lot more to say than could be tacked on to an already very long episode. But last week we talked about a thought experiment that I find to be relatively free of value to <laughs> philosophy and the world. And I think it's more more well uh, stated that 
when you're trying really hard not to have an orgasm, you think of Gettier problems. <laughs> makes right. you last. Makes you last. <laughs> so there's some some value. Some value. <laughs> some value. Yeah, not the intended value, perhaps, of what it was. <laughs> but, you know, you take what you can get. Um, <laughs> but essentially, that one started with a problem, um, how to come up with necessary and sufficient conditions, a theory of knowledge that really isn't a problem. It makes a kind of a blatantly false historical claim, and I thank Wesley Buckwalter on our Facebook page, for, who's a who's an epistemologist, for pointing this out. And I had alluded to it, but the whole narrative of all is that everybody thought up till that paper that knowledge was justified true belief. And it turns out that there's no references to back up that claim about what everybody... Th- and, it, and it really might be that nobody thought. So it's not just it's that like, everybody, but maybe not one single person thought that, or certainly one single major philosophical figure. Certainly not like people were wandering around in the 50s in their houses, you know, in their pipes, thinking that so, knowledge was justified, true belief. <laughs> so thank you for Wesley Buckwalter. For, did you see that I defended you uh, on Facebook as well? Um, somebody, some, somebody was saying that they... That why were we trashing epistemology instead of yeah. and favoring ethics? And I was like, first of all, it's not epistemology that we're trashing. Right. It, it was it's just that particular aspect. But second yeah. of all, we trash ethics. Pretty I didn't see this routinely. Oh yeah, no. yeah. See, there you go. Normally, you don't have my back. You just throw me under the bus. That's what you. That's what you think. You don't know all of the un the unstated times where yeah. where uh, you know, I have to defend you just out of shame. Yeah. <laughs> Just to defend yourself for doing... <laughs> just uh, basically like, so why, why are you doing a podcast with that guy? <laughs> Shut up, guys. Nah. So anyway, today we're going to talk about a thought experiment that is in some ways the, the very opposite. It, not, it, it, it takes a real problem, reasons to believe in God, makes a little thought experiment or puzzle, an argument. Whether or not you find it compelling is so fruitful in generating so many interesting philosophical questions, problems, and and it um, essentially created a whole new subfield of economics and psychology before those things really existed formally, um, decision theory, right? And of yeah. course, we're talking about Pascal's wager. There's one thing that, that nobody can say, and, and that is that Pascal was a dumb guy. Hey, this no. guy has had, <laughs> had a very, very fruitful mind. Um, you know, his and it, he's kind of a philosopher that is not the kind of philosopher that exists right now. Certainly not a professional philosopher. He wrote his thought. He just he has a pensée. It's, it just means thoughts, and it's just short little essays, various philosophical reflections, and, and it's amazing. Like, have you ever read? Ponce's start to no, start to finish. Never. I think there's a lot of classic because I wasn't uh, trained in philosophy. There, are, there's a lot of actual classic philosophy texts that I've never, you know, I've only read of. Pascal Montaigne, uh, another French essayist. These are the kinds of philosophers that you don't really find anymore, part and and th- that aren't taught anymore. Like it's not like I read. Pascal in grad school. I certainly did not. It was I just did it on my own. 
So let's talk about Pascal's wagers and all the different ways that people have objected to it. People have tried to defend it. Um, it's it's a really simple argument at, at its most stripped down level. And there's there are four combinations of of ways. And it, he's talking about a Christian God, according to you Christians, faith in God is required to. Um, go to heaven, and if you don't have that, you will go to hell. At its simplest, it's actually a really, really intuitively compelling argument. Basically, look, if God exists and you believe in him, you get eternal life, right? So there you're secured. If, if you believe in God and it turns out that he doesn't exist, what have you really lost? You know, not that much. Every, you're going to die anyway. If you don't believe in God because of your human pride and you you want you know you shake your fists at him and it turns out he does exist, infinite torture right on the Christian conception of God that Pascal was talking about, um, and then finally and, and if you don't believe in God and he doesn't exist then cool and all. so really why not believe in God because at worst you will die forever just like you would if you didn't believe in him at best you'll have eternal life. But if you and choose in the heaven. other way, in heaven, for you know, pleasure, presumably forever. But if you, but if you choose not to believe in God, you're playing with with infinite odds um, that you know that that you will actually be tortured and mutilated by by demons that tear your flesh apart and pour lemon and, juice on it and make you like come up with gettier counterexamples and <laughs> refinements. That would be your your particular hell. Like a little. As stated. I find it actually, you know, the first time you hear it, it's like, well, yeah, that actually is, that's not a bad argument. The only resistance I ever had was, wait, I don't think that, that doesn't, the conclusion doesn't seem right. But at first I couldn't find anything wrong with the method. Yeah. And it doesn't even really matter how likely it is that God does exist, as long as it's a finite possibility. So because you're talking about the difference between infinite reward and infinite punishment yeah and we should say that the the conclusion of this argument is that it's rational to believe in god yeah and this is the idea of you know rational expected value so if you're if you're basing your decisions on expected value then the rational thing to do would be to believe in God and the irrational thing to do would be to not believe in God which is funny exactly. because the sort of the, the new rationalists are often the people who think atheism is obviously the rational choice and that anybody who believes in God is being irrational so we're talking about the Sam Harris's the Richard Dawkins the Dan Dennett's the four horsemen of the atheists and that whole movement and and Pascal is is saying no it's really the opposite they're right. making from a practical decision standpoint a irrational choice and i now i want to talk about the objections but just to to piss off our sam harris listeners who we love and who <laughs> we, like half our emails say i came to you because of sam harris so we yeah. do love um i think there's a version of this that's defensible I just want to say, one of my pet peeves is when listeners uh, email us and they argue and they say, you guys, and then they say uh, an argument that you presented. And I'm I always forced to say, you know, perhaps it wasn't clear that there are two voices in this podcast. For the record, 
I often disagree <laughs> with what Tamler says. Throwing me under the bus. Uh, no, go this to is just. Reply. It really is just that, like I, all the complaints that you have, like my my one complaint is that um, that sometimes your voice is so loud that the conclusion is that the very bad wizards guys were arguing that Pascal was right. <laughs> or whatever, whatever it is, is that you are, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're not, not voice, not a, not literal. That you, yeah. you present your position strongly, and they forget that I disagree sometimes. I, I, I don't think that's the case. And I know fact, that you don't. I know. I just will, but, but I'll- I will say that sometimes <laughs> I get blamed for something that we both agreed with. Um, yes, but yes, but this is the same. Is a version yeah. of the same problem. It is yeah. that that they they uh, remember you having said it. Right. <laughs> and they pick on me. It was like, first of all, we both said it. Why are you picking on me? There is a way about you that uh, that I think encodes people with your contrarian sort of uh, uh, statements. It's just seared into their mind. The Jewish scapegoating um, <laughs> continues. Happy Passover, by the way. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And in fact... It's interesting that this is taking place on Passover because... Or as we call it, Easter, (laughs) as we call it. (laughs) That will figure in to... That's right. It's uh, yesterday he he dieth and tomorrow he riseth again, right? Yes, Yes. exactly. Um, Uh, Do you want to go through a couple of the objections? Yeah, let's go through them. I I did want to say that as far as I can see, though, I mean, this is... Even if you dismiss this thought experiment as mental masturbation of some sort or, or as being obviously wrong uh, because of, you know, what, for whatever reason, I, I, it is super important that decision theory arose from this argument. At the very least, what we can say is there might be wrong, there, there might be wrong things with the details, uh, the, the structure of the rewards and what you choose to put in your little table or whatever. But the calculation of expected value, where you essentially take the odds that something will happen multiplied by the value of that thing, is not only still used, it is still considered the fundamentally normative way to arrive at a decision under conditions of uncertainty. Can you give an example of that? <clears throat> yeah. So, for instance, if you're trying to, if you want to know whether to buy a lottery ticket, it's a dollar lottery ticket. Is it a rational thing to do to buy that lottery ticket? So um, what you would do is say, well, how big is the pot? And how many people are playing the lottery? So if you calculate the odds of you winning the pot, there is a, a cutoff point where if there are few enough people playing and the number is big enough, the expected value, you literally do expectancy times value, and you can say the expected value of this lottery ticket is over a dollar right, it's a dollar and one cent or whatever, um, then then it is rational for you to buy that lottery ticket. If it is lower than a dollar, which it always is, or, or lotteries would not work, <laughs> then it is not rational for you to do it. So economists, decision theorists, psychologists, whatever, behavioral economists, like this, this is, un, again, it's key that it's under conditions of uncertainty, right, where you don't know what's going to happen, um, that is taken to be the normatively correct way to do it now and and the whole body of sort of decision under uncertainty uh, work in psychology the kahneman tversky stuff it's all showing that human beings make errors in this kind of judgment but the only way they can show that it's an error is by using this exact calculation 
Right. Right. So, so it is fundamental to the way in which social scientists, behavioral scientists, decision theorists think about it. And it's funny because, you know, when you talk about some of those behavioral economics experiments, especially those ones where you're paying a little bit now or sacrificing a little bit of money now to get more later or something like that, and yeah. that sometimes you don't necessarily agree with their... Exactly. You actually think there's more value than the expected value right. that, that they designate for that decision, or you think there's less value. And yeah, or but, it's a higher higher probability yeah. or lower probability. Like, and yeah, exactly. So, well, that, yeah, or I mean, you could disagree with the probability, and that's an empirical claim. But if you mm-hmm. disagree with the value, say, of you know, money today versus money one year from now yeah that's a normative question that's like a value judgment that's not something that is an empirical question or at least well, it's a much it's a different empirical question yeah it's actually an interesting thing not to stray too far but but you can say for instance to some somebody might say well you when you tell me that a 99 cent expected value of a lottery ticket makes it irrational for me to buy the lottery ticket what you're not taking into account is the value i'm getting in the thrill of for one dollar, I get to, for a moment, have the the thought, "Hey, I might be a millionaire," if, you know, yeah. and that that is valuable. And so, in the in the defense of decision theorists and psychologists, they they actually would say, "Well, yeah, let's take subjective value into account. Let's say that very thing and use that." And so then then what you can start to do is say. Do people's values and preferences are those consistent? Like, is it right. uh, does it make sense for you to say that twenty dollars in a week is this much value to you, but in another condition you say that it's this much value to you? And so, so figuring out exactly what the inputs are into this calculus is is another interesting question. But you, but you're right. I read this story about um, David. What's his name? The Deadwood writer, David Milch, or he used to go to a shoot you know he, he worked on so many different shows and he would show up with just like a hundred or two hundred scratch off lottery tickets for the camera <laughs> people and all the staff and just hand them out and they all loved him because of that yeah. and that's and, and i think they would love him way more than if he gave them the amount of money in those uh, for lottery sh- tickets, and for I sure, get that in- for sure. There is there is some thrill in the uncertainty, and in fact, that very thing we, we used to when I was in graduate school. Um, over the summers, we would collect data um, in, at state fairs, and we were doing this health psychology stuff about you know trying to trying to get people to act uh, more healthy, and we would pay people for like a quick survey. We would give them the option of either a dollar or a dollar lottery ticket. Hands down. I mean, no one takes the dollar bill. (laughs) (laughs) Knowing that the expected value of it is is less. So then, so here's my point then, and this is a more precise way of making it, is that you have to take into account the subjective value of the whatever thrill that is. And there's reason to think there's not maybe radical variation in that, but... There's also no reason to think there's not significant variation in right. how much value we attach to those kinds of things. I definitely have friends who get mad if they get a lottery ticket because they know how you know right. how unlikely it is that you can win, and it just the, the the what they think the irrationality of it pisses them off. Right. And so, like people just react differently to these things, which is a problem. 
in some of these behavioral economics experiments that employ decision theory of calling it irrational because you're calling it like that you're saying you're assigning some sort of subjective value judgment as the rational one to have for example right what's the subjective value of believing in god even though there's no god so what you know like is that right being wrong being like wrong, how much does so it living you your whole finite life on earth believing something false and practicing in that way you know that could be a serious negative value right right the the baking in of the infinite reward is rather important for this um for this so that i i think in that sense it takes away whatever subjective value differences you might have for the 80 years of life that you at best you know whatever um because in comparison to an infinite value um then then it's very hard to make an argument that how, however pissed off you are at being wrong would be worse. Well, I mean, is the infinite so important because you could just make it instead of infinite, finite, but it's not infinite punishment. It's just tremendous amount of suffering for uh, a very, very long time. And heaven is a tremendous amount of bliss for a very, very long time. Right, it's time. like a million years. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you could, right? Uh, but I think there you could, like, when if somebody said, no, being wrong for 80 years really, really does make me feel like that's worse than being happy for a million years. And there, and, and you would be like, well, okay, how can I argue with that? But if you right. put in the infinite value, that is very hard to, right? Yeah. It's it's almost just sort of a way of, of dealing with that particular issue. Let's go through a couple of the most common objections. The first, this is one of them that I always brought to this um, to this puzzle, and I think I always treated it as a puzzle more than like a <laughs> how an do argument I for how do I figure things. out how do I stay an atheist in how do light I stay of this? an atheist in light of this? Yeah, well, one of the questions is what does that mean to just start believing in God? Is, is that even possible? This is ca uh, called sometimes the intellectualist objection. You don't just get to be belief isn't something that you can just turn on or off. Right. Like, One okay, does not all the evidence points against God existing, but now I believe in God. How does that work? One does not simply start believing in God. Um, yes. So I'm not, I, this is going to be fun because I'm not familiar with my, the, the, this, the classic objection. So my initial thought is, uh, is yeah, of course, like that's hard. There's a, there's a version of this in, sometimes in the psychology of religion where people point to all of the health benefits of being a believer. So it turns yeah. out that, that it really is the case that people who are, are um, religious are happier. They have fewer health problems or whatever. And some of that can be explained by, by like increased social support or whatever, but maybe not all of it. And it's like, okay, but what are you saying that like I should just start be start believing right. so that I like have like you know five more years of, of life or something that, that so would be so even different. if you're making that argument which is a different argument that you're just going to have a happier mortal life if right. you're a believer in God there's still the question of how do you just turn on the light switch of belief so you know some people think faith is a gift but I think baked into that cliche or expression is the idea that it's not something that you can do voluntarily. It's you can't just opt in. If ahead. you happen to be in a, 
in the sort of religion that simply required actions for salvation yes. to occur, then 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 it would be fine, right? So if all I have to it's like every Wednesday night I have to like you know uh, jump up and down ten times and and say the magic words, um, then then you wouldn't it wouldn't require something so fundamentally sincere as changing your your heart but simply do a thing. So if I said to you, hey, turns out like, I know you don't believe me, but if you just say, you know, this word once a week, every, you know, like just yell it out, you will actually live 10 years longer. There, I'd be kind of like, well, I guess, why not? <laughs> like, what does it take? <laughs> yeah, if you're in a religion that is more about the practice than the belief, then... And I think Judaism is like this. and it, Or Judaism has a combination of this. where so As does Catholicism, I think, yeah. When I was considering marrying uh, a non-Jew back, because my wife is not Jewish, um, my rel- Orthodox Jewish relatives said they wanted her to make an Orthodox conversion, but they took it very seriously and was like, so you have to live like a... Uh, orthodox person for a year and i and i was at my most sam harris richard dawkins this was 20 this is before sam harris but right around when richard dawkins was just starting out on his uh atheist kick and i was all in on that and um and so i was saying how improbable it was and giving them all those arguments and they're like look i get that um we're not asking you to just believe in this we're just (laughs) asking you to just live like an Orthodox Jew for um, for a year, and if you can do that, and she has a conversion, then we are happy with Jen. But then, but there was a second element to that, which was, and that's how you'll you'll know, you'll come to know or understand the truth right. of God's existence is through the practice. Right. So there's two elements to that. There's number one that Judaism emphasizes the practice more than the belief, but I think part of that is that the belief comes through the practice. And Buddhism right. is like this too. Nobody asks you to believe in the some of the weird Buddhist metaphysics. They just say meditate and do this every single day, right? Maybe go on a retreat and you'll start to understand the truth of of what we say through the practice, but you don't right. separate the belief from the practice. And I don't know to what extent Christianity is like that. I think that it's not in doctrine, it's not at all. And I know that some people might might argue with this, but but I'm 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 happy to to firmly claim that the central tenet of Christianity is that the belief happens first, right? You you accept the grace of of God and the sacrifice of Jesus. That is the step that's required, and then everything else follows. So while I know that there are some, right, like Catholicism focuses on a lot of actions. So it's not that some kinds of Christianity don't focus on actions, and they may even have explicit um, beliefs that if you do the actions, it will help you change your heart but that is by the by the grace of god is the central christian tenet whatever anybody says like this no i I will pull out texts if you point out to a to a christian well look i just don't believe in it and you're saying just accept jesus as your savior i mean i can say those words but i won't really believe it what do i do they won't say, well, you could try going to church and going to 
they might, but those are all things that are run-ups to trying to to change to change your actual mind. So I think that traditionally Christianity would view the actions as disingenuous if they were done without belief. So they would say, expose yourself to church because the pastor might convince you and then then you would let your stubborn heart accept the truth but not that engaging in the actions will slowly change your mind as a wicked heart yeah sinful wicked heart (laughs) exactly so and and you know of course pascal's doing this for christian belief which is also the one that is very focused on heaven and hell in a way that uh other religions or many other religions aren't and the and the the argument is really based on the existence of, of a heaven God. and hell, yeah. or at least this version of the argument is, because that's the whole expected value right. part of it. Right. So it's in some ways, it, it's a mismatch, right? It's like, I think this this objection works best for, it sounds like, I'm trusting you on this, Christian belief. I. And, well, I mean, no, I work. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The objection, the objection, the intellectualist yeah, 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 objection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think absolutely because it's, it is. I mean, it is like saying, "Hey, uh, fall in love with this person." Right. You're like, wait, how, how do I go about falling in love with somebody for whom I currently have zero feelings for? <laughs> yeah. So that's one objection. Another objection. This is another one that I always thought was decisive. I'm not. I'm no longer sure, but. How do you know that you're praying to the right God? That's the one that got me. Yeah, that's the one that got me. Obviously, when Pascal was writing this, you know, there was like a worldview. It's not as if anybody was taking into serious, like anybody in Pascal's part of the world was seriously taking any other sort of metaphysical uh, views uh, into account. But it's to me, that's the obvious one. So the idea is, look, you believe in this Christian God, but then it turns out that it's the Muslim God or the Jewish God, right. and then you're going to go to hell because you believed in the wrong God. So, so it's right. not just that you're. Although going those to three die. are the same, for the record, those three are all the same God. But you know, <laughs> they're the same God, but not necessarily the same. He might actually dis- care about dis- different things. <laughs> yeah, he's probably not going to send you. You know, the the Muslim God is not going to send you for heaven because you believed in the Christian God. I, the Jewish God, it's. pissed off at Christians, frankly, and rightly so. He doesn't even really give you guys an afterlife. I mean, what kind of God is that? Yeah, there's some heaven in some (laughs) versions of Judaism. There's not not a lot of hell, although there's a a kind of judgment day. Uh, Is judgment day just your mom telling you that you didn't call enough? (laughs) Probably. So now that I'm looking at this, it it i mean is this an argument that is that works because you could still say well there's still it's still worth it to pick one of these gods and believe in that god because that's your only chance of getting into heaven whereas here is where it, th- this other feature you were focusing on on the problem of subjective value but here is where really uh, when you start taking into account the um the other part of the equation, which is the ex- the ex- expectancy, right? The probability that something's happening. I think that for I think that it still works unless you have infinite uh, religions that right. So suppose there are one thousand 
potential religions to believe in. And you just yeah. have to pick one. Um, yeah. There, the math still works out because picking one out of those thousands is going to increase your odds as yeah. opposed to being an atheist. Um, right, because then you're definitely going to hell if God yeah. exists, if yeah. any of those gods exist. Right. Um, yeah. But the problem of how to calculate the probability that something will occur is actually the bigger uh, stickler. And this is when we, if, if we start talking, if we get to talking about um, this, the structure of this problem as applied to other possibilities, which it can easily be, um, as the Bostrom example shows, that we'll yeah. actually start getting to like, okay, what is the base rate? What is, right? The, this is where base yeah. comes in. What is the actual chances that this is the probability? But does it matter what the probability is in the sense not in of, the, not, not in if the it's infinite. infinite. Exactly. Right. right. Once yeah. you start getting to finite values, then all of a sudden it matters more. Then but the yes. probability uh, matter is, is crucial yeah. to, uh, to know. Um, so I was thinking about it, you know, in a more down-to-earth, somewhat naturalistic way. Um, and I think this is... So I was thinking about how could I defend what my relatives were telling me back in the time where I was, there's no way I, I would hear it. I mean, I still wouldn't. So here's my, here's what I know, um, which is that my relatives are on average much happier than like your average agnostic atheist person. They have uh, a big community, they, they, they don't have very much money, but they don't seem to need very much money. They they have a great time. They're always laughing. They're always, um, you know, it's not like nothing bad ever happens to them. It does, but they seem to have really good, strong relationships, big families that they enjoy and that they're proud of. And I've witnessed this essentially my my whole life, though much less recently since I married a, a non-Jew. Okay, <laughs> so I know that, and I and I knew that at the time. So essentially, when they were asking me to devote a year of my life to this, um, my decision matrix was a year of my life where I'm doing something that feels somewhat disingenuous and that, that, I, that I'm not on board with and that would be annoying, like trying to keep kosher for the first time, trying to go to, to temple and, uh, and, and pray in a language that I don't um, fully understand or you know, very partially understand. But, number one, I could start to feel the truth of what they're doing. They're, they're all really smart people. So they're not, like, crazy. They're not cult leaders. Even if I didn't, it would, you know, maybe I would start to uh, engage with that community in ways that I currently can't. Is that something that is, would have been worth doing from my perspective. And if I did start to see the truth in what they were doing, and, you know, there really is some form of afterlife or heaven, then that's, you know, that's the that's a big cherry on top, too, that I'd get to experience right. based on that. So why not, in if, if you're in one of those religions or can choose to be in one of those religions that really emphasizes practice, is it rational to engage in those practices in spite of not believing in what's behind those practices? I think that that <clears throat> this is a question just more generally. It's it, 
why wouldn't you do something that might actually make you feel happier? And there is a, there's a thought. I've, I've certainly had this thought. I mean, I'm raising a religious um, uh, household, and I agree with you about the happiness part. Like, I always thought that there was something really about my religious relatives that, that makes them that makes them happier. And it to, to me it is not it is just one of those things where I it I feel so strongly and this is where Judaism might be just really different. I feel so strongly that it is that my happiness would be contingent upon my sincere belief. Right. That it would be useless for me to try. Um and so but so if you gave me the calculus where it was like okay but what if there were uh, activities that you could engage in um where so suppose that joining a a reading group and going every week would make you happier but i'm tired and lazy and i don't feel like doing it there i would just be like yeah sure like i probably should do it now whether i have the you know i'm weak of will and that's a different problem but i would be convinced that i have to do it so to the extent that i that that you could that i could even believe that i could plausibly convince myself in the truth of a religion i think it might it, it might be worth it um, that, you know, we're, we're avoiding all of the question about the bad stuff that comes with religion, which I think is a real, uh, a real possibility. Um, but yeah. if, if you just accept that it made people happier as a brute empirical fact, then I think that why, <laughs> why wouldn't you try? Right. Why? Yeah. Like, I mean, essentially, like I'm saying, like, why, what, what would be off the table to make you happier. And I think the only things that would be off the table for me would be things that violate the categorical imperative. No, we're just kidding. But you know what <laughs> right. I'm saying? Like b- b- ethically wrong things that hurt other people. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, so um, <laughs> Sam Harris listeners, we assume you're now going to engage in some sort of religious practice. Of course, they're going to say, well, we already do. We're meditators. We're well, I, I mean, I think that yeah. that's fair, right? I think that actually yeah, that's fair. That's, that Sam is, is genuinely seeking the kind of happiness that might have traditionally come from a supernatural belief. And he's engaged in, I, I think, a serious quest to find a way of finding the peace and happiness without um without having to accept the metaphysics but by the way this gets us to uh, richard wright which uh, will hopefully be on our show he has a new book out on on buddhism um or a new book that's coming out on buddhism and and i, I think this is his tack too which is like look I, let's 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 find something that gives us the peace of of religious belief and the happiness of religious belief without having to inherit to actually the, yeah 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 no and in fact you know i'm still meditating daily after a year and a half uh, uh one plug on that front there's this guy dan harris he was an he's an abc news reporter and anchor this was a suggestion for a, a listener he has this podcast called 10 percent happier that sam harris was just on and he has all these people in the buddhist community come and talk and it's a really engaging podcast he also has an app that helps people learn how to start meditating and a book called 10 percent happier the subtitle is meditation for the fidgety skeptic and it's very funny like he comes at that he he has the attitude like foul-mouthed skeptic hates all the like hippy dippy like bullshit but then has become very serious as a buddhist and a meditator um without losing that kind of edge that he has and it's it's it's, so he's uh another really good example of 
how you can engage in this practice while <laughs> maintaining your your integrity. Integrity is a good way of putting it. Where it's just like yeah. you know, there is some there is real value to me in 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 sincerely acquiring beliefs that I think are true, and it's like you know. Obviously, Pascal thinks infinite <laughs> reward should override that. But this is another objection that I always wondered about: Is God going to, and especially maybe a Christian God, is He not going to be impressed if you just believed this because you, you know, you ran the numbers and thought like, is He going to think that's disingenuous, that that's violation of integrity, and so not send you to heaven anyway, and? Uh, and, and the other version of this is, what if this God, this Christian God, is actually more impressed with the person who who was who said, "Look, there's not enough evidence to believe in God, so I'm not going to do it," right. and um, and then sends that person to heaven, sends the sort of more cynical, opportunistic believer to hell. Does that mess up the decision matrix? I mean, if if uh, if I were God, right, <laughs> I, I would certainly value the person who sincerely acquired the beliefs over the person who was disingenuous um, for the sake of reward. But uh, I, <laughs> I think, yeah, it's it messes up. It doesn't mess up the math of it, but it messes up the steps. Right? It would be it would be Pascal's wager would be less fun because you would just say like. You know, like one should sincerely acquire their beliefs about the supernatural, and then you'd be like, "Sweet, I did it, <laughs> done, <laughs> done." <laughs> I'm not believing anything I don't believe. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to heaven. <laughs> yeah, it's an it's an argument for having uh, justified true beliefs and 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 <laughs> considering those to be knowledge. <laughs> um, no, I it is, but it's funny that that as you were saying that, I just thought to myself. That kind of is my own personal Pascal's wager, which is, yeah. you know, like not believing in God was never something that came easy to me. So my own personal version of Pascal's wager is if God exists, um, he would surely not judge people on the basis of of whether or not they, you know, believe this specific thing, but rather on on whether they they were sincere and good people. Right. Um, so so. Not that that's motivating me to be good. I am just by nature a wonderful, wonderful person. But um, but I have to <laughs> I have to think to myself if God existed, the chances are, come on, that He wouldn't judge you. Like you know, what if you were raised in like Native American fourteen twelve? You had no shot at believing in Allah or Jehovah or or God or Jesus. There's come on, man. God wouldn't hold that against you. <laughs> When you're getting anally probed by like eighteen pitchforks <laughs> in heaven, they're gonna play a recording of this back. In heaven? Wait, like, in heaven? So how hell. did you know how did you know that, that was my personal <laughs> <That's> heaven? <laughs> Have you been looking at my you porn account? <laughs> oh man, I hope that wasn't a Freudian slip. <laughs> All this time I could have made myself happy by like having pitchforks stuck up my ass. Uh, do you want to take a break and move on? Or do yeah, you wanna... and talk about Pascal's mugging? Yeah, let's do that.
Okay, so we've talked about Pascal's wager, um, and uh, there's... So I guess one of the problems that we were referring to earlier is that one of the critiques of, of Pascal's wager is that, look, when you toss infinity, like infinite reward and infinite punishment into the equation, just things get screwy, right? There's actually like, you know, the mathematics of infinity are very, very different. And certainly it's hard to think that you could guide your decision making in this existence with the mathematics of infinity. But there's... But as we were saying, it doesn't have to be infinite. You can have, right? I think utility theory still says that if you can calculate a high value, a finite value, you still get these interesting paradoxes and pro perhaps paradoxes and problems. And one of the ways in which this has been formulated is in, a, I think, a pretty clever... I don't know actually who, who the first person to say it. Was it Nick Bostrom or Bostrom? He, no, um, he uh, wrote about it, but I think... He says at the end of his article um, that it was uh, Eliezer Yedlowski um, okay. and did a post at Overcoming Bias oh, yeah, at the Overcoming right. Bias blog called Pascal's Mugging. Right. And so, so yeah, so Pascal's Mugging is a version of this thought experiment. You want to... Uh, do you want to give a, a an overview of the problem? Well, this was more your thing, so why don't you? <laughs> okay, yeah. So, uh, so let me set the stage. You know, earlier when you were talking about how how uh, there's a funny uh, flip in which Pascal was arguing that the rational the rational solution is to believe in God, and the sort of the modern atheists have taken rationality to mean that you don't believe in God, which I think is fine, right? Obviously, there's a lot of other reasons that they're using, but. Um, Sam uh, Harris and m many other people, including Nick Bostrom, have have used this different version of the problem um, in the context of talking about the possibility of artificial intelligences that um, you know take over the world. And so the idea of Pascal's mugging is simply suppose that a mugger comes up to Pascal or whoever and says, "Give me your wallet now." Pascal says, but you don't know to have a gun. <laughs> Monsieur, you do not have a gun. Uh -huh. So he says, oh, no, no, no. okay, that's, that doesn't matter. Let's just, but here, why don't we do this? Give me your wallet now, and in exchange, I will come back tomorrow and give you like a million dollars. Right. So why should um, I trust you? <laughs> that's not a more trust you, right? Israeli. <laughs> why should I trust you? So essentially, like in in the Bostrom story that we that we will link to, you can have this game where you play and you say, "Look, I grant that you don't believe me. That is, when I, when you say you don't believe me, what you mean is that you think the odds that I will actually show up tomorrow with some large amount of money are really really low. So let's calculate what the odds are. Give me what your odds are. Just say like one in a million. Okay." Now let is let's I'll tell you that I will give you a finite sum of money that is guaranteed to make it such that the math works out, right? right. That the math actually makes it a rational outcome for you to give me the wallet now. And uh, so here the the twist, the or at least the the solution is to take the mathematics of infinity out of this and just use normal ass like regular you know, lottery large ticket numbers. expected value, yeah. but with really large numbers. And the reason that this is uh, uh, 
an argument that is is used in this context is because these as Bostrom and others have argued and as Sam Harris defended and in that episode when Sam was bringing it up I was actually convinced by this he um, brought up uh, Pascal's mugging uh, not Pascal's mugging but he brought up this problem of, oh. of AI and essentially yeah he said look um, it's pretty clear at some point that AI will become uh, like that there will be artificial intelligences that are totally able to dominate humanity. Um, And when that happens, it will be absolutely devastating for all of humanity. And so put, plug in some premises that you may or may not buy, but it still ends up being a fairly compelling argument. If you think even that the chances are one in a million, um, but those chances mean that it would wipe out humanity. That is right. like human beings would be treated as as cockroaches or bacterium. Um, then or those factory farm pigs. <laughs> exactly. So that's the the Pascal's mugging example. It's essentially taking Pascal's wager, but plugging in non non infinite calculations, finite numbers. And here, at least, the argument is that you get past the primary objections to Pascal's wager, and you should rationally. Right. Use this as as a right. And, you know, people use this about climate change too. An argument right. along these lines is even if you think, even if you're a climate skeptic, you would still it would still be worth it to right. invest in this kind of technology just on the chance that those radical environmentalists are exactly. correct that the human beings are causing global warming and that and climate change and that that will ultimately make it life on this earth uninhabitable right and so so anything that's like extinction level event or whatever so so in fact in the discussion that some some philosophers have philosophers who are especially interested in in charitable donations like people who who are interested in effective altruism right if you're if you're trying to figure out what you ought to donate to like um you could say well i think we ought to donate to the thing that will make the most difference um so an efficient charity that saves lives so you could but you could also say we should devote you know a quadrillion dollars of resources to preventing an asteroid from hitting the earth because you know the chances of that happening in the next thousand years might be fairly low but if it does happen that means all of humanity is gone for sure it's really hard to figure out what the calculation is because if you're talking about an asteroid that's you know like you're talking and the chances of a thousand years well there's a lot of other things that can that will threaten the earth's existence too and how do you weigh and then how do you weigh the fact that this will happen in a thousand years versus like buying some mosquito nets to save people's lives today is just the fact that the earth will be destroyed in a thousand years worst case scenario does that outweigh like anything finite that we could or uh, do on Earth to make people happier for the next thousand years. Again, these are tricky value judgments that at a certain point you're going to bottom out on the math and setting that aside to the extent that it can be set aside, you do arrive at some 
weird conclusions. And right. like in this Nick Bostrom paper, which also came out in an analysis, like uh, just about 30 years, 40 years after Gettier, uh, published his little short piece in analysis. But but I think the, the, the point is he has Pascal by the end wagering on something that is just the fact that a mugger knows magic uh, right. and can give him a quadrillion units of, of happiness. It's like that's, you know, he has the, the it's, it's interesting how he can get Pascal to believe in something that's so completely unlikely. It's it's a dialogue, so it's not clear what the argument is. This supposed to be a reductio? Is this supposed to be? Uh, just I think a, he's actually be, be, given that Bostrom uses this as a way to to sort of point to the the need to take real action that involves costs in order to prevent a super, you know AI from from destroying humanity. I think that it's not a reductio for him. I think that it is actually um, intended to defeat all objections to these kinds of examples. He probably thinks that this is one of the events of uh, that could wipe out humanity that is higher of, of a fairly high probability compared to to other uh, other possibilities, and at least something we can do about it now, right? So, so you know, it could be that some plague wipes out all of humanity, but it's unclear that we have enough in, what in, makes enough you information. Th- think that because nothing in the dialogue would make you think that this is about saving humanity oh and because that's because he because he makes this argument he is the one behind the the sort of but he group of people who are who want to take seriously like you know i thought nick bostrom was the one who thinks there's a hundred percent chance that we're living in or close to a hundred percent chance that we're living in a simulation um, which would seem like there's a tension between those two those two uh, views that's isn't that um so bostrom might believe that but but in fact um it i don't think it's inconsistent so suppose we are living in a simulation so he thinks the probability is really high that we're living in a simulation but right. that i don't think that he's using that to argue that that anything here doesn't matter right so so in fact one of the in that less the original posting of pascal's mugging yeah one of the examples is that um, the the mugger says, hey, we're all in the Matrix and you know that, but I'm going to step outside the Matrix and program the Turing machine that runs the Matrix to kill, you know, three to the whatever order of magnitude, uh, quad, you know, quadrillion people if you don't give me your wallet. And so, so I think that it's not inconsistent in the sense that he thinks even if we are in a simulation, like we should do everything we can to save our... Right. So that goes back to so, your point yeah. last yeah, exactly. time was it doesn't <laughs> really demon. matter if we're in a simulation. <laughs> yeah. That's all that it that that there is for us, then that's still right. like to the extent that we want to save the world, the underlying reality doesn't really matter. Exactly. That, that's your first step towards serious like expressivism, non cognitivism, like <laughs> not fucking we should just like I'll I'll just have yeah. to remain silent about all things metaphysical <laughs> from now on. You're you're a logical positivist now. That was essentially <laughs> their point. Good job. Let me put in a little Final. plug for for Rick and Morty, uh, the cartoon that is based that is sci-fi. There's a great episode um, where they're they're trapped in a simulation. So uh, uh, there's a there's a thing that I wanted to bring up in this context, which is there there are a couple of issues. One is that 
whether or not expected utility calculations are reasonable guides to action in the real world. So, so you could say, like, I buy the math. And in fact, you could be convinced by Pascal's mugging um, and say that is, in fact, the right answer. But there's a psychological question or maybe a, a hybrid question that's, that you can ask, which is, can we hold people to this kind of rationality? And this is where, like, all of the work on on because their brains don't care about their future. So. I, exactly, I, exactly. Our brains, our brains are dicks. Even though they're the ones who came up with the math to begin with, they <laughs> they like come up with it and then they make us ignore it. Um, but but you know there is untold there are untold examples of how people are bad at at actually making these kinds of calculations. Everything from um, how we how we update our beliefs based on prior information like we're shitty bayesians right we right. what we should be doing is c- consistently updating the probability that an outcome will happen based on what's happened in the past and we're not very very good at that um the monty hall problem is a classic example of how bad we are at it um, yeah but I won't, I won't. um and then there's all kinds of the the you know the framing problems that get people to give diff- very different answers based on irrelevant information and all those so you might think that that um, the that human beings in general should not be required to hold to this standard, and there is, I think, a relevant criticism of all of that behavioral economics work, which says this is only interesting because you're the one who said that we ought to think this way, and you know right. what? People just don't behave that way. So, like, yeah, right. it's you it's, have a very specific version of instrumental rationality that you think everybody ought to follow, but why? Right. If you were programming the world, you know, in your simulation, maybe you would want to give everybody the cognitive abilities to do these calculations. But it turns out that human beings are really bad at it. So you could you 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 could. And this has been a criticism say like this is just an unreasonable standard. It's like so it's 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 not even just unreasonable, but it's in some ways question begging. There's two versions of this objection. There's the version that says it's too demanding to expect human beings based on our limited psychological capacities to follow this uh, reasoning this complex, we, we're just not equipped to do it. We don't have the cognitive capacities. Um, right. And then there's the second, which is, no, like, even if I could think in those terms, why would I want to? Why would I? Right. Those two things are, I think, I think both criticisms that you could yeah but there is another criticism and and i so i don't know to what extent this is a criticism about expected utility theory or just an exception to this but laurie paul the philosopher um who you and i both know um argues that um even if you take so for instance in the first segment you were talking about the subjective value right so you say like I am. I want to go to um, to an amusement park because this is how much happiness I know I will have from the amusement park, even though it takes this much time to drive to it and this much money, whatever. I, like the rational thing would be for me uh, to go to the amusement park because of the joy that I'll get out of it. So it requires you having some knowledge. So you have to assess value for an event when you're deciding to engage in that event, right? Probability also, but but values, but. What she argues is that there are some life experiences that are so different from anything else that you've ever experienced that you just can't make that calculation, 
You right. think you can, but um, but if you asked yourself after the fact whether or not you really knew what you were talking about before the fact, you would say, no, I had no idea. And in her yeah. example, it's having a child. Um, right. Doesn't doesn't have to be having a child, but but she thinks this is a tra- so-called transformative experience and that the decision, you, you can imagine a couple or a, a, a woman just saying like, okay, I want to figure out whether or not I want to have a child, assume that the probability is high enough that I could just do it if I decided to do it. Um, here is, and, and of course there are negatives and positives, so I am going to pick the value and make my decision based on that value. She says, not only are you going to be uh, wrong, but there's no chance that you could have had the information that you yourself would know would be required after yeah. the fact. It's so different. Um, no, that's and, a great example. And it's not just you can imagine people who do that. Right. I know people who do that. Like I know <laughs> couples who are trying to like f- calculate whether or not they should have the kid based on the various considerations. And I think Lori Paul is absolutely right that that's just not a calc. It's, it's and she uh, wants to say it's not irrational. It's just not a ra- It's non-rational. I think. Um, yeah. Right. She's, well, it's yeah. just you're there. You can't make a decision based on some sort of rational expected value calculation because the 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 types of experiences you're talking about are incommensurable it's not necessarily that one is better than the other it's just that they can't be compared right and so and so common common objections are well look i i may not know what it's like to go on the world's greatest roller coaster but i know what it's like to go down you know down a hill in a car really fast and so let me use this and in my mind, sort of approximate the experience, and so maybe child uh, having a child is just like having four dogs or whatever, you know, <laughs> or or something similar. Um, and and here, I mean, I think this is this is one of those things that we'll never. There's no good way to arrive at an answer, but she says, well, look, no, there's some things you can approximate, like you can. If I tell you that um, this new food you've never tasted tastes sort of like pancakes, but with more salt, then fine. You can taste it even though you've never tasted it. You can kind of get to it. But if it's something for which you really don't have any good reference, then it's a futile like uh, yeah. example. Um, and that's why having a child, I think, is such a good example because you really don't have a reference for that. I certainly didn't. You know, some people talk about like uh hallucinogens like it's like lsd and I, i've never done any of those but they're like well, you won't well, there's you nothing should. i can say to explain how that feels right yeah and so to me i'm like well the risk that it'll i do know one thing about it and one thing is that there is a probability there's a probability who knows how big it is that it will be a hor- horrendous trip like i'll start seeing the fucking devil you know like and he'll start pitchforking me i know that this is <laughs> we learned that both of us think that would be great that would be sexy, a sexy devil. Yeah. <laughs> sexy hell. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. It's true. I do not know what it's like to be on acid. Um, and I don't know if that counts it's as great. a transformative. It's great. You should experience. do it. And I'm telling you right now, it's great. You're not going to have a bad trip. So like, but people do have bad trips, right? So even if it's a small probability, it's like yeah. really what I want to know is how bad was your trip? Like, I actually don't need to know that much about what it feels like to know that I don't want to do it if I think that the bad trip. But it is a good example of something that you don't have a referent for. Even if, like, you have a bad trip, 
like you don't need to that's not that's not really that helpful because you don't know what the good trip would be like and you don't know what the bad trip would be like yeah anyway I, it, it, there are these kinds of experiences that we can't put in some sort of calculation and we shouldn't like this is just this is where the the economists and the rationalist community like there's certain things you can't cram into your categories they just can't like they're they're yeah so how do you make the decision about having a child yeah i mean like let's at least agree that there are bad reasons for doing it and and not bad reasons but like what you know it's a great question i mean like i don't know about you we didn't really like think about i don't mean like that that it was an accident it wasn't yeah but what I mean is it was just like, yeah, we're going to have a child. Like, yeah. I don't know. Like, why not have a child? We're, you know, it seems like what people do and it, it doesn't look terrible. Like, I, there was never like a... I so, mean, this human species or any species, you know, if, if it required too much decision making, <laughs> right. that we would not exist, right? Like, if you actually, even if I grant that you can do the calculation, I think the calculation probably would end up being coming out that i shouldn't have a kid and nonetheless i don't care right (laughs) but okay but here but there's a a way in which i think i think i can salvage rationality in this process in some meaningful way and also pander to your sort of um like desire to have interpersonal information guiding individual decisions in a way that's not regular and systematic and that is Wow. If you, uh, yeah, see, that's a tall order. Just wait for it. Wait for it. (laughs) Um, If I I think that a reasonable way to make decisions about things that you've, that might be transformative on, on, on Lori Paul's definition is to ask people who have had them and see how happy they are currently. Now, so, so I could say, you know, Tamler is sort of like me in this way, um, in the following ways that I think are relevant. And you say, tripping on acid was great and say i have like five other friends who might respect their opinion on these things and they all say it was great there i think that if all of you had said it was bad i ought not to right and and because you know maybe there's an assumption about sort of the shared physiology of the human brain but also the shared interests and backgrounds of of the people whom you ask now Lori has an objection to this she says the fucked up part about it is that after people have those experiences, they are not good at reporting the real value because because of whatever cognitive dissonance, all this stuff. Like once you have a baby, you think it's the best thing ever. And right. that could just be self-deception. And so you should consider very strongly that these people are all being self-deceived and they're not giving you the right information. In fact, but that just means that you would be self-deceived in a way of thinking that yeah. you were you were happy. Like, I don't even know what self-deception means in that context. Like, how are you deceiving yourself? If you believe that you're happy and you feel happy... Yeah, then and the simulation is making yeah. you happy, then you are happy. I think that the example that she gives, and it's been a while since since I've uh, read this, but is something like a, a drug addict, like a heroin shooter who right. is addicted to heroin, and you don't want to be... You, you think it's a bad thing to be addicted to heroin, but every time the heroin shooter shoots up, they're like, dude, yeah. worth it. Like, this shit is really awesome. Like, I don't care what you think about, like, my hygiene and my scratching myself and 
So here's what I think is the right, maybe this is also a version of her response to this objection, is the whole point of a transformative experience is that it transforms you into kind of like a different person. Mm -hmm. And so you are asking a person that's different from how they were whether this was worth doing and right yeah that's but right. you're yeah. still a, the childless version of dave say at yeah. the time and so and yeah yeah exactly yeah. you you yeah. you i think you got it exactly right that's a, that's right that's that, yes. that's it so you then, don't know you don't have access to somebody yeah, you don't have access to their former self, and they don't yeah. have access to their former self, so they can't make the comparison. <laughs> the brain has made them a stranger to each other. <laughs> yes, that's right. It's Again, it's all the brain's fault. If we could just fix that. It's uh, so obvious from all of this literature that if you removed brains, people would be more rational. All right, should we wrap it up on that note? Everyone uh, uh, go get brain, um, what's the word? Not brain, reductions. Uh, <laughs> removal <laughs> surgery. Through your nose with a hook. <laughs> <laughs> go get a hook. It's the only rational thing to do. The great thing is that like halfway through, you won't even know you're doing it. <laughs> right. And then then when it's done, you're just going to be this perfect rational agent. Uh, and then you'll become Christian. All right, um, join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. Just a very bad wizard.